Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I intend to cover in this audio 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 1 through 15. Our topic is Paul and the false apostles. He defends himself vigorously against their charges, which is exactly what he was doing in the last chapter, chapter 10, so we'll continue with the same theme. We start in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1. Paul says this, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me. Now, of course, Paul's being a little bit ironic here. He doesn't think he's really speaking foolishness, but I'm sure what he's referring to is that the false apostles he's opposing pride themselves on their wisdom and their philosophy and their knowledge, and Paul's just a fool. And so he says, okay, well, let me, let me give you some foolishness. Now, he says put up with him because he has to boast. He has to boast about his spiritual accomplishments. He didn't like doing that, but because the false apostles were slandering him, he had to. They were boasting of their gifts, their abilities, their usefulness, and Paul had to say, wait a minute, I'm going to have to tell you about my gifts, my abilities, and my usefulness. Now, the King James has here, I would to God you would put up with a little foolishness for me. Now, this is an interesting minor point, really. It's a translation issue. Would to God is not in the original Greek. It's I wish. Jameson Foster Brown points out that the KJV has erroneously translated the, the verse here. Here's a good quote from Adam Clark. Quote, as the word God is not mentioned here, it's not in the Greek, it would have been much better to have translated the passage literally thus, I wish you could bear a little with me, which is exactly how the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it. Gil Clark continues, the too frequent use of this sacred name produces a familiarity with it that is not at all conducive to reverence and godly fear. I would to God. Sounds like a curt, like an oath, like swearing. No, Paul just says, I wish. This is a sober note for all you KGV-only people out there. Your translation ain't necessarily the best all the time. Second Corinthians 11.2, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. Paul doesn't want there to be any rivals to Christ in Paul's gospel of Christ. And so he wants the Corinthian church to be married to one, to be hanging around with one suitor, Christ. Now, when he says, I have promised you in marriage, that's what a father does. Remember, Paul is the father of the Corinthian church. And so he says, I'm going to present my bride, my Corinthian church, as a pure virgin to Jesus. Now, this marriage metaphor, of course, is everywhere in the scriptures. Matthew 9:15. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. John 3:29. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice for this, so this joy of mine is complete. So once again, he compares himself to a bride, to a groom, and the church is the bride. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. So you may belong to another. That's the metaphor when somebody dies, they're free to remarry. Talking about dying to the law, you so you can be free to marry Christ. Again, groom and bride m metaphors. Another verse, Ephesians 5, 23 through 32. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. This is a well-known passage where Jesus is the bride, the church. Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. 
Revelation 19, 7 through 9, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the wife has prepared herself. The wife is the church. Jesus is the groom. She, the church, was given fine linen to wear, the bride, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous act of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, These words of God are true. And then, of course, we have that famous verse in Revelation 21, too. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of, out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So the holy city, the New Jerusalem, which, of course, is the church, is a bride adorned for her husband, who is Jesus. So Paul wants to present the Corinthian church as a pure virgin to Christ, as opposed to having his church whoring around with false apostles. Perhaps Paul is referring to an Old Testament law, Leviticus 20.14, concerning the high priest. The high priest is not to marry a widow, a divorced woman, or one defiled by prostitution. He is to marry a virgin from his own people. And like the, and since the high priest is a representative of our high priest Jesus, the Old Testament high priest, the old Israel's high priest had to marry a virgin, so the new Israel's high priest Jesus should marry a virgin, which is the church, so the church should be pure. So the next time a church gets itself involved in immorality, the members of that church ought to think this, I am acting like a whore. I am not married as a pure virgin to Christ. Purity, morality, decency, fruits of the Spirit and all are extremely important if you are a member of the body of Christ because you are a pure virgin married to Jesus. Now note that the word is singular. I want to present you a pure virgin in other words, the whole Corinthian church was looked at as the bride. It wasn't individual Corinthians, it was the whole church, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I fear that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. Now, of course, it was the serpent that deceived Eve, but the serpent was really the devil who was using the serpent, speaking through the serpent. So the devil deceived Eve by his cunning. The devil is not obvious. The devil's not come, going to come to you and say, come on, let's sin. Our natural barriers to gross sin have to be overcome suddenly. Natural barriers like our conscience and social expectations, people just don't go run out and do sin. You've watched enough movies. The man tries to talk the woman into adultery, and she resists for about 30 or 40 minutes of the movie, and finally halfway through she gives in. Yeah, that's just the way sin is. The devil's got to work at it, and he's got to be cunning to do it and come up with a bunch of lies. Well, you know, my husband doesn't love me, so I'm going to commit adultery. Lie, lie, lie. You know, I'm just bored in marriage. Marriage is the tomb of love, as the, all the young Chinese people say. But anyway, that's what the devil does. He does things by coming, and as a result, when he does that, one's minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. And that's what Paul was worried about the Corinthians, that their minds were being seduced. And, of course, they were being seduced by these false apostles who he's getting ready to tear into. Now, notice Paul says he fears that. He was worried about it. Now, this is a good verse for faith message preachers who say that it's a sin to fear. Oh, you shouldn't fear. That shows that you don't have faith. Well, Paul says, I fear that. Now, the next question is, well, if Jesus told us in the Summer on the Mount not to worry... How does that square with Jesus saying, I fear that? Well, it could mean that what he means is I'm concerned about it. I'm focused on this problem right now. Not that he's shaking in his boots with fear, so he's not really worried. He's just he's just concerned. That's a fine line. Get concerned about something, you get, get concerned about it too much, you start worrying about it. 
So I think it's just a way of saying, look, I'm concerned about you, Corinthians. You need to shape up. Or it could be that Paul was worrying and he was sinning because, after all, Paul's not a perfect human being. His words were inspired, but not necessarily his thoughts or his actions. And notice the metaphor, seduced. Again, we're referring to the marriage metaphor, seduced a wife away from her husband, seduced the church away from her Lord. There's the marriage metaphor again. The Corinthians were being seduced from their true husband, Jesus, just like Eve was being seduced from her true husband, Adam. We go to verse 4, 2 Corinthians 11. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Now here Jesus is getting ready, uh, Paul is getting ready to talk about all the false teaching that was coming into the Corinthian church from the false apostles. They were preaching another Jesus, not the true Jesus. And think about how many other Jesus they are today. Oh, little Jesus, meek and mild. Oh, I've even seen people starting to quote scripture talking about how the Bible supports abortion, murdering babies. You can make the Bible do anything you want just by twisting it and preaching something that's not there. So you can preach another Jesus, you can have a different spirit, you can preach a different gospel. And Paul is being a little sarcastic here. He said, well, you put up with that splendidly. You put it up. Put up with it. Which shows that Paul thinks that not only is false teaching bad, but merely tolerating false teaching teaching is also bad. That's not good enough to say, well, I'm opposed to that teaching, but uh, but I'll listen to it. Uh, let me let me let me let me examine it to see if perhaps it might be true. If it's not Jesus, it's bunkum. If it's not Jesus, it's straight from the pit of hell and you need to spit on it and not put up with it. Now, preaching another Jesus, probably this was a Jesus that was cast in the mold of Judaistic teaching because probably these false apostles were Judaizers. As we look and see in verse 22 of 2 Corinthians 11, are they Hebrews? Many of the false apostles. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So they were Jews. They were probably teaching they had to keep the law to get saved. Now they were teaching a different spirit. Of course, Jesus is a spirit of love and freedom. But they were teaching and imparting a spirit of fear, bondage, and worldliness, as the NIV Study Bible says. Let's look at some bad spirits that can come when you get under the law. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, legalism, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You run to the Father like a little child sees his Father and is very excited. That's, that's Jesus. That's, that's when you love Jesus. But you want to love Moses and the law and, and also the man-made pharisaical laws. That's the spirit of slavery that will lead you to fear, according to Romans 8.15. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. Any Christian who lived, has lived on this planet long enough will pretty soon can recognize the spirit of the world real quick. doesn't matter how old the people are. doesn't matter what culture they are, what ethnic group they are, what gender they are. They all have this, basically the same nasty thoughts. That's the spirit of the world. Galatians 2.4, this issue arose because a false brother smuggled in. The issue arose was legalism, who came in secretly to spy on the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ in order to enslave us. So you see, getting under the law means getting to be a slave. Galatians 4.24, these things are illustrations. Well, the women represent the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. That's the famous allegory in Galatians. Hagar and Sarah. Sarah is the children of the promise. Freedom, Hagar is the, children, the mother of the children of slavery. 
because Hagar represents the law. Colossians 2, 20, verse 23, if you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, elemental forces of the world would be elemental laws. That word, Greek word there, stoichia, means that. It means laws of this world. Why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. They are commands and doctrines of men. Although these have a reputation of wisdom of promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. But they will make you a slave. So you see, Paul preaches against the law everywhere, and here he's preaching against the legalistic Judaizers who are trying to seduce the Corinthian church. We go now to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 5. Now I consider myself in no way inferior to the super-apostles, the Holman Christian Study Bible puts super-apostles in quotation marks to show that Paul doesn't really think that they're super-apostles. Paul is being sarcastic here. The super-apostles were not apostles at all, as the NIV Study Bible says, except in their own eyes. They bragged about their gifts, their learning, their eloquence, and that's why they were super, super to themselves. Now, Paul says he was in no way inferior to these so-called super-apostles. In fact, he says it again six verses later in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11. I have become a fool. You forced it on me. I should have been endorsed by you, since I am not in any way inferior to the super-apostles, even though I am nothing. I am not in any way inferior to the super-apostles. So he's not bragging. Well, he's bragging, but he's bragging in his apostle, apostolic authority, which was given to him by the Lord. He's not bragging in his flesh. Because he says, even though I'm nothing, in verse 11. We go to verse 6, 2 Corinthians 11. Though untrained in public speaking, Paul admits it. I am certainly not untrained in knowledge. Indeed, we have always made that clear to you in everything. Now, what he's referring to here is all the rhetorical tricks and polished oratory of the false teachers. These Greeks, these Corinthian Greeks, they love that stuff. I mean, even today, I read a lot of 19th century Greek scholars who and Greek historians who love to talk about the rhetoric of the ancient Greeks, and some of them get into the iambic pentameter and the qualities of this kind of meter against that kind of meter, and, and they just get into rhetoric. They just Even in the 1800s, they're still loving that stuff. <laughs> Litotes, you know, these rhetorical tricks. It's very interesting, actually, but it hasn't a thing to do with getting you saved and getting you close to Jesus. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. Quote, it is not an unusual thing for Greek scholars to the present day to be in raptures with the harmony of a Greek verse, the sense of which is but little regarded and perhaps is little worth. Well, that's the truth. John Gill says Paul did not use, quote, bombast and great swelling words of vanity, but he was trained, not untrained. That's litotes. There's a Greek rhetorical advice, litotes, double negative, not untrained. Paul says, I am not untrained in knowledge, which is the same thing as saying I am trained in knowledge. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 10, this is what he has told the Corinthians. However, we do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined for the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But that is as but as it is written, what I did not see and ear did not hear and what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So Paul did claim to have God's wisdom, wisdom by the Holy Spirit who searches everything, even the depths of God. He just didn't have Greek wisdom. 
And if you don't think there's any difference, read the Bible, read Plato and Aristotle. I, I dare anybody to do that and tell me that Plato and Aristotle even come up to one thousandth of the height of Paul. For Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, Paul continues, Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Now, it has been speculated that there are two ways that Paul's financial methods are used against him. We're going to see in a little bit that some people say it's one way and some people say it's another way. Some people say it's both. It could be. But here are the two ways that Paul's financial methods might have been used against him. First way, his enemies were claiming that since Paul took no offerings, his message was worthless. This is the NIV Study Bible's idea. This is a classic people of ill will damning you if you don't, damning you if you don't. Damn you if you do, and damn you if you don't. Because if he had taken money, what would they say? Oh, you're just getting rich off the gospel. You're hitting up these Corinthians, trying to get rich, Paul. So he doesn't take money, so people won't say that. And what do they say? Oh, your message is so lousy, it's not even worth charging for. A good Greek sophist will always charge for his services. And you're not even charging because, obviously, you think your methods is not very valuable. Okay, so that was the first way Paul was using... His enemies were using Paul's abstinence from taking up collections in Corinth. This is the first way his enemies were using that against Paul by saying that he. it appears that Paul's message was worthless because he couldn't take up money for it. Second way that they were criticizing Paul is, hey, he worked with his hands. Manual labor was servile or servile. Degrading. Anybody, anytime you read Greek history, that comes out real quick, real fast. Oh my gosh, that's the worst thing in the world. You, your daughter wants to marry a common laborer. Well, let's just go shoot myself and end my life because that's the worst thing a Greek could do. So Paul is preaching the gospel free of charge. He's being criticized for it, and he's again he's being sarcastic. Did I commit a sin by doing this? Was it sinful that I didn't charge you for my gospel? Meanwhile, his enemies are soaking the Corinthians for their rhetorical services. At least it's. Most people think they are. I will show you in a little while that some people don't think they were doing that, but I wouldn't be surprised that they were doing it. But at any rate, they were they were criticizing Paul for taking the gospel free of charge, for preaching the gospel free of charge. We go to verse eight, Second Corinthians eleven. Paul continues, "I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you." Now, notice he's speaking metaphorically. He obviously didn't rob another church, and he obviously didn't take a salary from them. It was donations. A lot difference the difference between salary and donations. But what he's saying is, is I took money from them, put them at some financial hardship so I could take teach you for free. Now think about that, Corinthians. Other churches gave money so I could teach you for free, and now I'm being criticized for that. And it's being said that I'm being sinful for that. How ungrateful can you be? Now what Paul did was, he took, as we'll see in a minute, he took, well I'll say it right here, he took money from other established churches, as the NIV Study Bible says. These were the Macedonian churches, especially Philippi, Philippi 4, 15 through 16. Remember Paul had stopped in Philippi on the way down to Corinth on the second journey in order to establish the Corinthian church, and he left Philippi. And so he's writing back to the Philippians from somewhere, and he says, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you and alone. Notice it's giving and receiving. It's not pay. Giving and receiving except you alone, Philippians. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. So the Philippians sent money to Paul when he was in Thessalonica. They when he started the Thessalonican church, and then when he went down to Corinth, they sent money down to him in Corinth. So Philipp, the Philippians were very generous. And so Paul is saying, hey, I robbed Philippi so I could teach you for free. 
He says, I robbed other churches. There was, so there's probably another church besides Philippi that he took money from. Could have been the Thessalonians. After he left Thessalonica, perhaps. We don't know for sure. Now we go to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9. When I was present with you, present with the Corinthians on the second missionary journey, Acts chapter 18, when Paul established the church. When I was present with you and in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. I have kept myself and will keep myself from burdening you in any way. He needed some money and noticed that even the great apostle could be in need. Sometimes he was in need, even though God richly supplied all his needs, as he tells the Philippians. Nevertheless, sometimes he was in need. Even though he worked with his hands, sometimes he was in need. He worked with his hands. He also gave money to support his traveling band of apostles, as he tells the Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts 18. But sometimes he needed money. But even when he was in money... He did not ask the in need, I'm sorry, even when he needed money, he did not ask the Corinthians to give him money. I did not burden anyone, Paul says. And how did he get supported when he was in need? The brothers who came from Macedonia supplied his needs. Now, it's not exactly sure who these brothers were. It's probably Silas and Timothy came on down to Tarrant after they separated somewhere in Macedonia. I think they separated it. I can't remember. Either Philippi or Thessalonica. But anyway... They separated in Acts 18.5, this is when Paul's at Corinth, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. This is when Paul was at Corinth on the second journey, and Paul mentions, uh, Luke mentions that Silas and Timothy had come down from Macedonia. That's probably the same reference that Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. The brothers came from Macedonia giving him money probably carried money from Philippi, and that would have been Silas and Timothy. John Gill and Adam Clark say these are probably other brethren from Philippi, not Silas and Timothy. For example, if Paphroditus, John Gill says, Jameson Foster Brown says, some other brethren besides Silas and Timothy. So I don't know who they are, but let's just say Silas and Timothy. At any rate, he took money from another church, but not before the Corinthians that he was preaching to. Why? Because he didn't want people... He's already criticized... These false apostles who are preaching, marketing the gospel for profit. That's somewhere in Second Corinthians. I forgot where it was right off the top of my head. But he's already criticized them for that. And he's not going to take money because then he would look like he's doing the same thing. Notice that these Philippians, how gracious they were. Once he was, he was at Thessalonica, the Philippians gave him money. Then when he moved on down to Corinth, the Philippians gave Paul some money again. Moving on to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 10 through 11. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Remember, Achaia is Greece, the Roman name for the province of Greece. And Corinth, of course, is what he's talking about, because Corinth is in Greece. This boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I don't love you. God knows I do. Now, notice he says, as the truth of Christ is in me. Paul is not shy about claiming that he knows the truth. That's a nice thought for us today who are living in today's wussy pussy modern postmodern world where what's true for you is true for you what's true for me is true for me but there's no such thing as truth for all of us which of course is absolute and utter philosophical and religious and moral nonsense it's led to such, such things as a college professor who was a colleague of mine at a chinese university 30 years old millennial and he starts trying to tell everybody on the bus that we can't judge Adolf Hitler because what's true for the German culture was true for them and it might not be applicable to us. And so, hey, yeah, just just whitewash Hitler killing six million Jews. 
And this guy was not a skinhead. I mean, he's not a neo-Nazi. He was just a, a postmodern. Don't believe in absolute truth. Paul believed in truth. It's the truth of Christ. That's where you get truth. For Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. You want to know truth, you better know Jesus. You don't know Jesus, you won't know truth. I don't care how much philosophy you study. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. What boasting? Probably, as John Gill says, the boasting that he had preached free of charge at Corinth. And so if he's, if people are not going to stop him from boasting about him preaching free of charge in the regions of Achaia, that means he probably didn't preach free of charge. Excuse me, he probably didn't preach for money. He probably did preach free of charge in the regions of Achaia everywhere. So it was not just at Corinth, but all around Corinth that he refused to take money. For example, there was a church at Sincrea, which was the the Corinthian port city on the eastern edge of the isthmus there, he probably didn't take money there either. It could be, he says, this boasting of mine will not be stopped. He could be talking about his boasting that he was not inferior to the super apostles, which I just mentioned, but I think he's most mainly talking about money here. How could Paul's boasting be stopped? And Paul says, I'm not going to stop it. How could the boasting be stopped? By Paul taking money from the Corinthians, then he couldn't boast anymore that he was preaching free of charge. We go to chapter 11, verse 12 of 2 Corinthians. But I will continue to do what I am doing in order to deny the opportunity of those who want an opportunity to be regarded just as our equals in what they boast about. Well, to continue what he's doing means I'm going to continue preaching without taking money. In order to deny the opportunity, the NIV says to cut the ground out from under, to cut the ground from under, in order to cut the ground from under those who want to be regarded as our equals and what they boast about. Well, what they're boasting about is their practice in financial matters, and they want to say, we're just as good as the Apostle Paul's and how we handle finance. Now, there is a question as to what exactly the super apostles were doing that Paul was trying to stop them from boasting about. There's one thing, as I go through this, one thing to remember, we know that Paul was not taking money. That's given. He says it. He's not taking money. But we don't know exactly what the super apostles were doing. Well, here are your two options. Here's option number one. They were taking money from the Corinthians. This is Albert Byrne's idea. Well, if they were taking money from the Corinthians, how are they claiming to be equal with Paul? Well, this way, Paul had said apostles had the right to receive pay in 1 Corinthians 9. You remember that story? Paul says, we have the right to don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. We have the right, the Levitical servants have the right to serve at the altar and get their pay, and we have a right to get paid too. And so the super apostle says, yeah, we're apostles too. We're equal with Paul. We have the right to pay too. And Paul says, well, I'm not going to let them claim equality that way because I'm going to give up my right. I'm going to not take money, and that shows that I'm ahead of the super apostles. They're not equal with me. And that makes a lot of sense, but it's not the only way you could interpret it. That's Barnes' interpretation that the super apostles were taking money. And Paul said, well, I'm not because Paul because they had the right to, because Paul said they had the right to, because they were apostles. And Paul says, well, I'm not going to take money. And that shows that I'm ahead of you, that you're not equal with me. Here's Ellicott's view, though. The other view is that the super apostles were not taking money. But then they were saying about Paul, he's taking money from the Macedonian churches. So he's preaching the gospel for profit. And so Paul says, well, okay, if the Corinth, if the false apostles are not taking money, and I am taking money from the Macedonian church, I'm going to make myself more equal to them by refusing to take money from the Corinthians. Now, I don't think that argument holds together, to be honest with you, because by Paul not taking money, 
And if you assume the false apostles were not taking money, that makes Paul equal with the false apostles. But Paul says he's not going to give them an opportunity to even be equal. He's going to be superior, and he, would, he wouldn't be superior. He'd be equal with them, not taking money. Not to mention the fact there's no evidence that the false teachers taught gratuitously. If they were Greeks or if they were Jews, Hellenistic Jews acting like Greeks, they always charged. They always charged for their services. Here's one more argument that Ellicott is right, that the false apostles were in fact taking money. Not Ellicott, I'm sorry. Barnes is right, that the false apostles were actually taking money and that Ellicott's view is wrong, Ellicott saying that they were not taking money. If you look at verse 7 and apply logic to it, logic in verse 7 impel one to believe that the false apostles were indeed taking money. In verse 7, Paul says, am I sinning by teaching for free? Well, that implies that the false apostles were accusing him of sinning by teaching for free. Now, if the false apostles are accusing Paul of sinning by teaching for free, that implies that they were not teaching for free because they couldn't get away with accusing Paul of teaching for free if they were doing the same thing. So I think there's no. I think that the view is is that these false apostles. The view is correct that these false apostles were teaching from money. And Paul is claiming his superiority to the false apostles by saying, I am not teaching for money. And besides, Paul himself said, hey, are you going to, is it a sin if I charge, if I don't charge for my services? Which sounds like he, his false apostles were saying, we do charge and Paul doesn't, and therefore Paul's sinning. So I think when you put all that together, the odds are, is that the false apostles were taking money, and Paul says, I'm going to beat that by not taking money. Now, this is a good application for us today. Not taking money from the people one is teaching is a good principle. I'm telling you, nobody can question your motives. If you're there at your own, and you financed yourself to get there, and you're not putting any burden on them except maybe some hospitality or something, it shows that you care about them, and, the, and you care about the message that you're teaching, and it's not going to be sullied by any personal motives of concupiscence greed it's going to be far from everybody's mind now let's go to second corinthians 11 verses 13 through 15 and we will finish up the chapter or finish up the audio for such people are false apostles deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of christ and no wonder for satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it is no great thing if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their destiny will be according to their works. In other words, they're going to hell. Now, Paul here says that they are false apostles. They're not really treat, preaching the gospel of Christ in a selfish manner. They're not orthodox, but greedy. They're not orthodox, but sinning. They're heretics. They are not Christians. Now, earlier, I, I, in a previous audio, I speculated that... The opponents of Paul might have been such apostles, true believers in Christ who were gotten onto a power trip, started making factions around themselves, and that very well could be. But here we know that some of the opponents of Paul in Corinth were actual heretics, workers of Satan. The other, we have to speculate, were they Judaizers that were really believers, but they wanted to throw the law in, and, and that we have to speculate about that. But we know that some of his opponents here were deceitful workers disguised as angels of light, like the devil, <laughs> disguised as servants of righteousness. It's really interesting. The devil is called an angel of light. In reality, he's the prince of darkness, but he looks like the angel of light. Why? Because people don't like darkness. People, because they're made in the image of God, 
oftentimes recoil at sin. I mean, watch the movies when they sit there. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Oh, this is going to be so bad. People don't just rush into sin. I mean, they'll rationalize it. They'll do it. But they got to be talked into it, and it's always got to be made look good. Well, you know, this drug's going to make me feel good, and it's going to relieve my... Like Bill Clinton said, I had an affair with a young intern because it relieved my anxieties. You know, you always got to find a justification for it. So that's why the devil's called an angel of light. He looks good when he's not. And if the devil does it, well, it's no wonder then that the devil's servants do it. The devil's teachers do it. So all of this tells me that we should not be surprised at all the quacks and lying teachers and demonic counterfeits and preachers of heresy and all that we find today in the church. It's been around for 2,000 years. Why should we expect it to be any different? God expects us to be able to distinguish these guys, though, and to know who they are and to get rid of them. There's no excuse for not getting rid of them. We've got the Word. you got the Spirit. you got Jesus. You don't need, you know, do you, what did Paul tell, what did John tell his readers? Do you need anybody to teach you? He didn't mean, did you not need Christian teachers? He means, do you not? Do you need these heretics to teach you? No. And then he goes through the five tests of orthodoxy, you know, the social test and all that. Listen, there's no excuse for you harboring a heretic in your church. Don't get suckered. Ladies and gentlemen, we finished with that jeremiad against the false apostles that Paul has produced here in the first 15 verses of 2 Corinthians. In our next audio, he's going to take... Verse 16 to the rest of the chapter is going to continue with the same theme. So we'll take that up next time. Hope you enjoyed this audio.